passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. David cracked all the jokes, so we don't have to have any jokes this morning. Um, which is good, because we're in 1 Samuel 28, which if you uh, are familiar with it, is a story about witches, witchcraft, necromancy, um, and a little bit of Star Wars, if you are familiar with Endor. Um, okay, that, that was the bad joke. I'm sorry. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, as I've been considering this text, it's a really, really unique text, um, probably the, the most unique in the entire Bible when it comes to um, what it covers. And uh, I've been thinking about what exactly is the message of this passage, and, and the thing that keeps coming back to me is the movie from, um, I think it's 2016, um, the movie Silence, um, by, uh, it's, it's about this, um, these, these two Jesuit priests in the, I think, 1600s, 1500s, that uh, traveled to Japan to look out, or to try to find their, um, their spiritual mentor, and um, coincidentally, multiple actors in that are also Star Wars actors. But um, as they're searching for their, their mentor, they, they really enco- encounter the suffering of the church in Japan. And uh, they are wrestling with why does it seem like God is silent? In the midst of all of this suffering, in the midst of all of, all of these challenges that they see God's people facing, why does it seem like God is silent? And of course, the, the, the main points of the, of the movie by the end of it is the fact that God isn't silent, that God is still at work, that God is with his people even in the midst of, of hardship and suffering. And yet, this morning, this text is about silence, and, and really the silence is very real in this passage. This is a text about, about King Saul, and he finds himself in his darkest moment. Uh, really, we'll find out that this is the, the night before he, he dies. And, and he cries out to God and asks God, what should I do? How should I get out of this situation that I find myself in? And, and God is silent. And this text is a challenging one. And, I, and it's not challenging to me because of the, the fact that it deals with witchcraft and necromancy, all of those kind of things. It, it's challenging to me because here we have someone who seems to be crying out to God, asking for help. And God sees fit to be quiet, to answer him with silence. And I wonder, what exactly do we do with that? How do we interpret that when, when we find ourselves in a moment, when we find ourselves suffering, where we're crying out to God, asking for help as well, and, and it seems like God is silent? How do we respond to God's silence? That's what we'll be looking at this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 through 25, all about the silence of God. And breaks, this story breaks apart into four parts, and that's kind of going to be our roadmap this morning. The first part is this idea of Saul and silence. Before we do that, let me just remind you of where we are in the book of 1 Samuel. We're coming to the end of 1 Samuel. We just have a couple more weeks left in this book. Um, 1 Samuel is all about our need for a king. We've, we've talked about that um, pretty much every week as we've been in this book. It's, it's about our need for a king, but not just our need for a king, our need for a, a specific type of king who's going to point us to the true king. 
A king who's going to point us to, to God himself, the, the king of glory. And the book of 1 Samuel reveals that need to us in a couple different ways. You get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and the people of God, they gather together. They come to Samuel, this prophet, and say, hey, we need, we need a king. But they say, we don't, we don't just want a king. We actually want a king like the nations. We want a king who can go out and fight our battles. A king who can, can defend us and, and take care of us and lead us. And, and God actually gives them exactly what they want. He says, okay, you want a king like the nations? Let me give you a king like the nations, and that's King Saul. And chapters 9 through 15 of 1 Samuel are all about King Saul, and, and from the very moment that he steps onto the scene, we see he is not the type of king that we need. He's the type of king we want. He's handsome. He's tall. He's strong. He's like a military champion. And yet, he doesn't really care about God. Saul's entire life is about him using God to get what he wants. God is always secondary to Saul and only worth following, only worth mentioning, only worth using if it can help Saul get what what he wants. And so we come to 1 Samuel chapter 15, the the end of this section of the book about Saul, and we see that Saul decides, you know what, I'm not really going to listen to God. God says do this, I'm going to only do part of it, and then I'm going to do what I actually want, and God rejects him as king. He says, because you've rejected me, I'm going to go ahead and reject you. And then the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, from 1 Samuel chapter 16 to where we are this morning to the very end, is about what does it look like to have a true king? A king who doesn't replace God, but a king who points us to him. And David, for all of his faults, and we saw a lot of those faults last week, David does that. David is quick to repent when he needs to repent. He shows us what it means to follow hard after God, the true king. And in doing so, he points us to Jesus, the perfect king, the true king, the king who not just points us to God, but leads us to him as well. Last week, we saw 1 Samuel chapter 27. Uh, David is, is not acting like the true king. He's not, he's not following God. He actually is, is just doing his own thing. He doesn't trust in, in the Lord. He trusts in himself. And we get to this moment at the end of chapter 27 where we actually end with a cliffhanger, where all of, all of David's baggage comes back, and, and it's about to, to lead to this disastrous moment in David's life. And then we're, we're just all of a sudden, we're, we leave David, and, and we, we actually jump forward in time to the story of, of Saul. And last week I said that, that David is experiencing silence from God because he, he doesn't want to follow God. And we get to chapter 28, and we see that, that Saul experiences silence from God. But it's not because he doesn't want to hear from God. There's something else going on here. Let's go ahead and jump into uh, 1 Samuel chapter 28. We're going to start in verse 3. Uh, the, the text begins by giving us a little bit of context about what's taking place here in this moment. 1 Samuel 28 verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So the story actually begins by reminding us of something that 1 Samuel has already told us back in chapter 25. It's almost 
verse or word for word the same as, as chapter 25, verse 1. This idea or this, this statement that Samuel has died. And we might be wondering, well, why exactly is the text telling us something that we've already heard back in chapter 25? And to understand the reason why, we have to remember who exactly Samuel is. Samuel comes onto the scene in chapter 2 of the book of 1 Samuel, but really he, he gets called to be a minister of, of, of the Lord in chapter 3. All the way back when he is a young boy, God calls him. He's, he's living with the priest. His, his parents saw what things were like in Israel. They knew what God needed or what, what God would do to, to rescue Israel out of the, the awful situation they were in, and they knew that, that they were, there needed to be a leader. Someone who would lead the people of God back to God. And so they offer up their son and say, we would, God, we, we know we don't, have, we don't have a child, but we would love to offer up our son to you so that you can use him to bring your people back to you. And so Samuel, young Samuel, is living with the priests when God calls out to him. And Samuel doesn't understand what is happening when God calls out to him. And the text, actually chapter 3, tells us why Samuel doesn't know what's going on. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Eli is the high priest at that time. And the word of the Lord was rare in, their, in those days. There was no frequent vision. I want to focus specifically on that last part of verse 1. This is centuries before the Bible is finished, and there are a couple of different books of the Bible that have been written that are considered to be the Word of God, but there's this new era of salvation history that is about to take place in this moment, that God is about to speak to his people once again. And he's going to use his prophet Samuel, and later on he's going to use other prophets as well. There's this perceived silence from God that is about to be shattered by God because God speaks. And he's going to speak through the prophet Samuel. That's actually how 1 Samuel chapter 3 ends, that, that everything is totally different from the beginning of chapter 3 to the end of chapter 3, that now God speaks. That you can hear and have the very words of God because God has anointed a prophet named Samuel. That's how chapter 3 ends. Notice what it says in verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Notice what the text is saying. It's saying from the very northernmost part of Israel all the way to the very south, everyone knows that God is speaking again through his prophet Samuel. What does that have to do with the Word of God? We see that actually in, in verse 21. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the Word of the Lord. And the Word of Samuel came to all Israel. So chapter, chapter 3 makes it very clear. Now that Samuel has been called by God, God is speaking again at, at Shiloh. That God is, is at work again. He's doing something new here with Samuel. And for the next several decades, we see that God is speaking through Samuel, that Samuel's words are the very words of God to the people of God, calling them back to God. But let's go back to chapter 28 now. We're told at the beginning of this chapter, Samuel's dead. 
And because Samuel is dead, there's this question. Does God still speak? Can we still have the word of God for us? That's why chapter 28 begins by telling us that, that Samuel has died. It's, it's asking, well, what is going to happen now? There's another piece of information that, that this verse gives us, not something that we've already seen, but actually this new piece of information. At some point in his reign, Saul decided to expel all of the mediums, all of the necromancers out of the land. This was a common practice in ancient times to seek wisdom, guidance, direction from the dead. People would do this all the time before the people of Israel entered into the land, but this was a practice that was forbidden by God. Deuteronomy chapter 18 makes that very clear. And the question we might ask is, well, why exactly is this forbidden by God? Part of it, of course, is that there is this demonic influence, but there's another piece to this. It's because they're seeking guidance, direction from a place other than God himself. In other words, this is a rebellion against God himself. They're seeking knowledge of the future from the dead rather than from God. And by doing that, in essence, people are saying, I can't trust God to have my best interests in mind, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go find someone who's on the other side, someone who has a little bit of, of inside information, someone who's already died that they can see and maybe they can give me some guidance that God is unwilling to give me. In essence, what we see with necromancers and with mediums in this context is that these are people who are following the exact same sin that we see in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, the the temptation of the serpent was to go around God, to ignore God, to doubt God's goodness, and to seek knowledge that God had forbidden. Notice Genesis chapter 3 verse 5, it says this, For God knows, this is the claim of the serpent, to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the very next verse in Genesis chapter 3, we're told that the woman sees the fruit and, and there's a number of reasons why she, she wants it, but part of that is because she saw a quote that it, is, it was desired to make one wise. In other words, to give knowledge that God didn't intend for people to have because he wanted them to trust in him. And that's the exact same thing that we see with necromancy. It's prohibited by God for the exact same reason. Don't go looking for answers from beyond the grave because God himself is worth trusting even when you may not understand what's happening in your life. At any rate, Saul, he's, he's, expend, he's expelled all of these uh, necromancers and mediums out of the land during his reign. So by the end of verse 3, we are told that one, Samuel the prophet, the one who spoke God's word, is gone. And two, the necromancers, those who sought to usurp God through secret knowledge, they're gone too. Let's keep reading in verse 4. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. 
Now, it should not surprise us that the Philistines are gathering for a large assault against Israel. Remember, the Philistines are not Canaanites. They actually came to the land of Israel around the same time that Israel moved into the land as well. A few generations after Israel enters the promised land from the east, the Philistines, they migrate to Israel from the west across the sea. And there's this tension here. Israel, God has promised them this land, and yet here are these Philistines. They're coming in around the same exact time. And the question is, the very presence of the Philistines is asking this question, is God going to keep his promises to Israel? Will Israel remain faithful? And throughout all of 1 Samuel, we see the Philistines are like this thermometer that's showing us the, the faithfulness of Israel's spirituality. So when the Philistines are oppressed and the, and the Israelites flourish, it's because they are faithful to God. On the other hand, when the Philistines are, are, are ruling over Israel, it's, it's because of the spiritual state of the people of Israel. So, considering Saul is the leader of Israel, it should not surprise us that the Philistines are on the move again. And yet, rather than attacking from the south, like they always do, uh, to this point in the book of First Samuel. This time they decide to go to the north. We have this map to show you here. The Philistines, they're militarily superior to the Israelites, and they just think, you know what, our, our chariots are going to be much more um, uh, superior, much more advantageous if we go to these northern plains near this community named Shunem. And so they go ahead and they, they go north and you can see the blue location there on the map is the land uh, of the Philistines and they go north to this place called Shunem. Uh, Saul brings the Israelites, that's the red arrow, uh, up to, to kind of head them off. And we have this battle line that is drawn here in this plain that if the Israelites fail, if they die, then basically the Philistines will have control of all of Israel. They will be able to assert, to assert their control over everyone if the, if the Israelites die and are defeated here at Gilboa. And maybe you can understand Saul's terror in this moment. Because there's a lot riding on this moment. That if they fail, if they fall here, all will be lost. All of Saul's previous victories will be washed away in this one moment. What does Saul do? Verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, by Urim, or by prophets. The night before battle, Saul cries out to God, asks God what he should do. And to Saul's credit, he uses the acceptable ways of asking God what he should do. Dreams were a common way that God spoke to kings in those days, just like in the book of Daniel. And yet God is silent. The Urim was this priestly object. We've seen it before in 1 Samuel where the high priest would ask God a question and God would answer through this uh, device, the Urim and Thummim. And yet God is silent. And so God, uh, Samuel, or Saul goes a different way. He says, well, you know, Samuel wasn't the only prophet. I'll go and ask the other prophets. Maybe they'll tell me what God is, is going to do or wants me to do in this moment. And God is silent. Saul asks God, 
cries out to God for help, and he's met with silence. And I imagine the fear in verse 5 that we read about from Saul is even greater after he asks God, what should I do? And God doesn't give him an answer. And Saul is desperate. He's tried turning to God and God hasn't answered him and so he goes to the only place that he knows or thinks that he can go and that is to the dead. Verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Even though Saul has cast out all of the mediums, all of the necromancers from the land of Israel, apparently some have escaped notice. This isn't terribly surprising. They remain in the land. And so he finds out from his servants that there's one in Endor. Endor is actually located behind the Philistine lines. And so if Saul is going to go and, and meet with this Philistine or this, this uh, medium, he has to go through the camp of the Philistines or at least around it in order to meet with her. It's his only hope. That's exactly what he does. He decides this is worth the risk because the silence of God is, is so, so deafening to him. That brings us into the second part of this story, and that's Saul, not Saul and silence, but Saul and this medium picking up in verse 8. He makes it past the Philistine camp. He makes it to Endor with his, his men, and, and he, he goes to the medium and, and asks the medium for help. Uh, let's go ahead and pick up in verse 8. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Woman is, is understandably reluctant to admit that she is a medium. She doesn't say that she is one. She, she says, why, why would I say that? Or you know what, what King Saul is, is about. He, he, he would kill me if if you got me to, to do this type of thing. And, and she thinks, well, these, these men are, are, are probably spies from King Saul. Of course, you know, you can catch the irony here. Here's Saul himself. She says, I would never do that because King Saul would put me to death. And notice how Saul responds in verse 10. But Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. That verse should shock you. This is one of the most profane verses in the entire Bible. Because here, Saul invokes the name of God as assurance that he will protect this woman from the word of God. This shows us Saul's heart. He might have the veneer of religion. He might look like he's serious about his faith, but his heart is far from God. What matters to him most is not a life that honors God. Whatever matters most to him is, is his wants, his needs. And if God can help him meet those ends, that's great. But if God doesn't, he'll go somewhere else, like to a medium. And maybe you can begin to see here why God is silent when Saul asks him what he should do in verse 6. It's not because God is, is callous towards those who are trapped in sin but cry out for mercy from this abundantly merciful God. 
It's because God has no patience for those who would presume to take his name, hide their dead hearts in a shell of religion, and show no concern about what it actually means to follow God, actually means to repent, actually means to return to God, and instead are only concerned with what they can get out of him. And that's what Saul is here in this chapter. But more on that in a moment. Let's keep reading verse 11. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. All right, this is the part of this chapter that probably most of us are most curious about. And we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at it. The text, notice, is extremely brief in describing the woman's actions. How does she call Samuel up? I don't know. Text doesn't tell us. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what is happening here. Just take a moment. You know, this, this passage might, might fascinate us because it's so otherworldly, and yet, again, it, it leaves a lot of, of questions to us when we read it, but everything is described here so quickly, so matter-of-factly, it's because 1 Samuel doesn't have any interest in inspiring copycats, inspiring that that curiosity within us about the occult. Instead, the book is laser-focused on its message. It's a a very different warning here. Now, all that said, there are two observations I do think that we should make from verse 12 here. Let's go ahead and read verse 12 again. It says this, When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Let's go ahead and leave that up here for a moment. First, notice the woman's response in this verse when she sees Samuel. So she cries out with a loud voice. In other words, she's shocked by what takes place here in this moment. Something is happening in this moment that doesn't normally take place when she performs a seance. And you can interpret this two ways. First, maybe she's a fraud. You know, maybe she's just really good at ventriloquism and, and this entire time she's, she's fooling other people. She's not actually communing with the dead and, and this entire time she's, you know, she's just fleecing people for their money. And then all of a sudden, someone actually, it actually happens. It actually works and she's terrified. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is normally she doesn't commune with the dead. Instead, she in- communes with the demonic. But in this case, it's not the demonic that she is communing with. It's actually something completely different again. This is Samuel itself. And this is so radically different than what she's normally experiencing that that she's shocked and she's terrified. I think those are the two options for us that are from from the text as we read it. Which one is best? I I don't know. You You can decide for yourself. Second observation from verse 12. 
In verse 12, we see a question that oftentimes gets raised is, is whether this is actually Samuel or not. Well, verse 12 tells, it, tells us it is. Every single time that this being is referred to or mentioned here in chapter 28, he is referred to as Samuel. It's not a spirit pretending to be Samuel. The text just refers to him as Samuel. So I'm going to take the Bible for what it's saying. Say, okay, this, this is Samuel, that, that something is happening here in this moment. Now, maybe not normally this is what God does, but in this moment, something has happened where Samuel is now speaking to Saul. And that might lead to other questions. I, I get that. That's understandable. How? Of course, I, I don't know how this happens. God doesn't normally operate this way. But in this moment, as a part of God's message of judgment upon Saul, this is what takes place. We might not understand the how, but the why is very clear. God has a message for Saul, and if we're listening, God has a message for us as well. There's more we could, could say about that. I don't want to get bogged down in rabbit trails. Let's just stay focused on the heart of this text. What is God communicating in the, in the silence to Saul and to us? That's the heart of this third part of the story, Saul and Samuel starting in verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Samuel's not thrilled with Saul. This is actually a, a relatively common occurrence with Saul and Samuel. Samuel is, is not impressed with what Saul is doing. He asks Saul, why have you disturbed me? And Saul explains the situation that's um, facing him and almost like it's a no-brainer. Well, w wouldn't you do the same thing if you were in, in my situation? I asked God and God didn't answer me, so I had to get an answer. And, and so I, I came to you even though you are dead. You are, after all, the prophet of the Lord. So what should I do? Samuel answers Saul. He answers him in three parts, starting in verse 16. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? First thing that Samuel says is, is hey, Saul, if you are paying attention, God already answered you in your silence. The reason God is silent toward you is because of the enmity that exists between you and him. Saul, you might not have liked the answer, but God has already answered you through the silence. So why are you coming to me? Saul, so if you're serious about the things of God, then you would take a moment to consider why God has been silent. And if Saul was serious and took a moment and genuinely looked at his own spiritual state, he would have been cut to the core because he would have realized that he has cut himself off from God by a life of constant rejection of God, a life that constantly uses God rather than submits to God, ignores God unless it's convenient for him to listen to God. Samuel is basically saying here in verse 16, Hey Saul, you've already gotten your answer from the silence, so why are you bothering me? 
Things aren't, aren't right between you and God. You don't need me to come from the grave in order to tell you that. So that's the first thing that Samuel tells to him. Second, Samuel reminds Saul of what he's already been told. That, that God's silence is because of Saul's disobedience. That's verse 17 and 18. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. I find it fascinating here that Saul seeks an answer from beyond the grave and the answer he is given is basically what God has already told him. Samuel points him back to the revealed word of God from chapter 15. He says, well, of course this is what you're experiencing. It's because this is what God said would happen to you. You have lived a life of disobedience to God. You can't claim ignorance about that. God has spoken. He's revealed his word to you. And that makes it clear what is happening to you in this moment. Your current situation is a result of your disobedience, Saul. So that's the second part of Samuel's response. Third part. Verse 19, he tells, Sam, he tells Saul that the day of judgment will be tomorrow. That Saul's disobedience will finally come to an end. Verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. It's interesting that Samuel's first prophecy, all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 3, is a prophecy of judgment against the wicked leaders of God's people. And here, his last prophecy is a prophecy of judgment against the wicked leader of God's people. Back in chapter 3, it was Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who, just like Saul, saw God as an opportunity to further their own agenda. Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, and Saul don't see God as worthy of glory and live their lives accordingly. And we saw back in chapter 4 the result of a life persistently lived for your own glory rather than the glory of God when that prophecy comes true. When Eli, Hophni, Phinehas all die on the same day shows us what God thinks about those who refuse to give him the glory that he is due and it's almost as if Samuel here in this moment is saying, Saul, you should have known better. You should have known better. You should have lived a life differently. But because you were the God of your life and you didn't submit your life to the true God, you will meet the same end. Because you ignored the countless opportunities for repentance, God has been silent. 
and judgment is coming. And that's the last we see of Samuel. He just disappears. His message has been given. Honestly, Saul has been given a gift in this moment. Because he knows something that none of us do. And that is the day of his death. And even now, in this moment, Saul has an opportunity to respond. And how he responds is going to make all the difference in the world. After all of these persistent calls from God to repent, they've fallen on deaf ears, will God's silence finally lead to repentance from Saul? This might be reading a little bit into the text, but the Bible doesn't deal with hypotheticals, but, but I wonder what would have happened if Saul would have listened to the silence. You look at Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, Jonah is sent to Nineveh, pronounces judgment is coming, and the people of Nineveh are so terrified by that, so convicted that they repent in sackcloth and ashes, and God relents. Would have God have done the same thing with Saul in this moment? We don't know. This is a gracious God. Even if God would not have relented, In Saul's repentance, Saul would have spent forever with God in his repentance, even if he died the next day by being reconciled to God. And yet instead of life change and repentance and listening to God, we see something completely different from Saul at the end of this chapter. We're told of Saul's final meal provided by a medium. Verse 20. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and night. Before Saul had visited this medium, we saw that he was afraid in verse 5, and now he is filled with fear. Saul hasn't eaten all day and all night. Some people say, well, that's because he was fasting as a way to try to get God to answer him. Others just say, you know what, it's because of his anxiety. He just couldn't bring himself to eat because of what was facing him. I don't know. But the woman now seizes the initiative here in verse 21, and the woman came to Saul And when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. I find it fascinating that word obey is here. Because what has Saul refused to do with God this entire time? It's obey him. And now there is a medium saying, I want you to obey me. How will Saul respond? Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. Again, just another word there. He refused to listen to God, and now he listens to this medium. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it and took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Don't miss that irony. 
But the man who would not obey or listen to the Lord now obeys and listens to a witch. Saul should have responded with repentance. And instead, he continues with life as usual. He eats a feast that is fit for a king. He sets back out to his camp with his men. The next day, he will face God's judgment for his sins. But before we get to that, that's chapter 31. We'll take a moment to go back to chapter 29 and 30 next week with the life of David. But what about today and this text? What, what exactly should we make of this chapter? I think the message of this chapter is, is relatively clear. It's, it's a message of warning for every single one of us that a lifelong pattern of rejecting God will lead to silence from God. A lifelong pattern of rejecting God will lead to silence from God. Saul has lived his life of rebellion against God, and in doing so, he has hardened his heart so much that he is unable to respond to God's grace and mercy. And I don't want you to miss the warning of this text because a lifelong pattern of rejecting God will lead to silence from God. That's the message of Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 is a very sobering warning for us. It says this, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Hebrews chapter 3 is a call to persevere, and part of that calling to persevere in the Christian faith is the importance of being surrounded by other Christians who can identify our blind spots, exhort us, encourage us in the faith. And when that encouragement happens, it is supposed to happen every single day, as long as it is called today, so that none of us will harden our hearts through the deceitfulness of sin. But Hebrews chapter 3 is saying something more. It's reminding us that if you feel God calling you to repent today, if the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart today, in this very moment, right now, if, if God is saying, hey, right now, you need to take care of this. Hebrews chapter 3 is saying, don't wait till tomorrow. Don't ignore the power of of." the Spirit at work speaking to you right now because you are not guaranteed tomorrow. And that doesn't just mean that you might be dead tomorrow. It also means that you might not have the ears to hear tomorrow. That if you harden your heart today, that that hardened heart will be even harder for God to break through, that he might be silent tomorrow. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The more you put off obedience, the the longer you put off repentance, the more you harden your heart, the more calloused your heart becomes, and the more difficult it will be to repent in the future. Hebrews chapter 3 is a sobering reminder that tomorrow is never promised. 
today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. Do not wait until tomorrow. That's what Saul did for his entire life. His entire life confronted with sin. He may have shown some sorrow. He may have shown regret, but he never showed repentance. He never did the hard, painful work of responding to God with obedience, even though it was painful, even though it was costly. And where does it lead him? It leads him to a seance in the middle of the night with God nowhere to be found. Don't miss the warning of this passage. Don't let your life end up as a tragedy like Saul's. Silence should always lead us to self-introspection, to consider where we are being obedient and where we are being disobedient to the, the calling of the Spirit in our lives. And if we are willing to repent as needed, silence should encourage us to invite others to to look at our lives, examine our blind spots, speak the hard, painful, but life-giving truths of the gospel into our lives. A lifelong pattern of rejecting God will lead to silence from God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Father, we need you to speak. We thank you that you speak. What an incredible gift that is. Help us, God, to not just hear from you, but also strengthen us to be able to respond. God, I ask for every single person here this morning that you would speak, that you would not be silent to us, and that you would strengthen us and enable us to respond to the life-giving, life-saving, life-transforming good news of the gospel. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.